Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us find our time of need. Y'all can be seated. Thank you, Coulter. I want to encourage you to grab a Bible. I'm super excited this morning to start our summer series that's just simply entitled Genesis. And so if you don't have a Bible this morning, you can grab one from that bookshelf in the back, and it's real easy to find if you are unfamiliar with the Bible. It is page one. That's where we're going to be today. We're going to get back to the beginning, sharing in some great things today. I do want to mention before we get started, I forgot to say this in the welcome that we have a family place of membership with us today, and we're excited to have them. And uh, so we've got the Kitchens Family Place of Membership. They've been with us for almost a year now. That's, uh, that's Nathan and Mandy and Katrina and Connor and Callie and sometimes boyfriend Robert <laughs> who's here with us. If y'all would just raise your hand or something, we are excited to have them. They, uh, man, they love, love Jesus, come to us from Perryton and excited. They are already super plugged in and uh, work in so many ways with this church family, but excited to have you guys. Also, we didn't do this last week. We're dropping the ball, uh, but our new interns are with us, of course, and we announced them on a Wednesday, but maybe not everybody got to see them. Uh, Gemma Arbuckles, our youth intern, she is on, she's in Washington, D.C. right now with her family, and uh, she'll be back next week. And then uh, we've also got Carly Hensel from Woodward, and Carly's with our children. She's our children's ministry intern, and I'm sure she's in children's church right now. So that was really anticlimactic, because <laughs> you can't see them. But I uh, hope you'll get to meet them, but we are glad that y'all are here today. So as you guys are getting to Genesis 1, I want you to take a little bit of a, I guess it's a quiz. I want you to be thinking about something. Try to identify... What's wrong with these movie plot lines I'm going to give you here in just a little bit? But you're going to have to use your imagination a little bit, because for most of us, you're going to have to imagine that you've never seen this movie. So as I tell you this quick plot line, think about what's missing from it if you had never heard of or never seen the book or the movie about what I'm about to give you. Okay, y'all ready for that? As you guys are getting to Genesis 1. Here's the first one. Dorothy repeats, there's no place like home. There's no place like home. There's no place like home. There's the first one. Second one, Simba ascends Pride Rock, taking the kingdom back from his evil uncle, and the circle of life is complete. And Barry, I wish I could have cued you there for a circle of life thing. Yeah. <laughs> and then the third one here. See what's missing out of those plot lines. The third one. And then a little girl declared, Every time a bell rings, an angel gets its wings. All right, so think about that. What's missing in, if you've never seen that, if you've never heard those stories, if you're brand new to those, missing, uh, to those movies, what's missing? Well, a whole lot of details, right? Specifically, the beginning. Who is Dorothy and why is she going home? Why does she want to go back home? Who's the little girl and why is she talking about 
Who is this little girl? Why is she talking about angels and wings and bells? And what is pride rock? And what's the circle of life? Right? Specifically, what's missing in these stories is the beginning. The beginning of a story tells you a lot of what you need to know, almost everything you need to know. You cannot understand a story's purpose, its plot, its trajectory without getting into the start, without reading the text correctly or seeing the movie from the start, from the beginning. That's why this summer we're going to get into Genesis 1 through 11. Genesis 1 through 11 serves as the prologue of the Bible. It is a template it is a starting point to understand what the rest of Scripture is about. It's a critical piece of text, an exciting piece of text. There's strange things that happen in these parts of the Bible. But they're critical because we are not living at the beginning and we're not living at the end. We are living what? In the middle. Jesus has come and Jesus will come again, but until then... We are living in the in-between. We are in that transitory space, that liminal space. So how we read the first of Scripture matters to how we live in the middle of the Christian walk right here and now. In fact, I would go so far to say that how we interpret and read Genesis 1 through 11 informs much more about how we live today than we can ever imagine. It is critical. So we're going to get into this and get going. I'm excited about this. I've got a lot of ground to cover today. So if you're a note taker and you want these notes afterwards and say, oh, I didn't follow that, just holler at me. I would be happy to share this with you. But before we get into it, we need to discuss this word. As followers of Jesus, we believe that those 66 books that are in your hand or on your device that we call the Bible are inspired words, words of God. We believe that. We believe that because Scripture speaks that about itself. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, all Scripture is what? It's God-breathed. It's Spirit-led. It's God's ruach. It's His pneuma. It's what He's breathed. That word means it is inspired. We believe that God has used Different people over different times, over different continents, in three major different languages, to, across hundreds of different types of cultures, to bring together and communicate a message. And here's what I hope we believe, that the Bible has one message. It is not a random smattering of thoughts. It is a unified story that all points to Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith. He is the point of scripture. So when we start to use the word inspired, we are talking about words of God whose inspiration should lead us to greater understanding of Jesus. Now, hear me here. If you're new to the Bible, unfamiliar with it, or if you're very familiar with it, we need this reminder. Scripture being inspired does not mean that Scripture is homogenous. You with me? It doesn't mean that all Scripture is the same. All Scripture is inspired by God, but Scripture takes different forms. 
Some of it's prophetic language, some of it's wisdom literature, some of it's narrative, some of it's very poetic. A lot of it's very poetic. God in his infinite wisdom has used different genres and different styles of writing in different time periods to make his story come into view. And I think for the most part, we do understand that. For example, when David says in Psalm 51, surely I was sinful at birth, we know that he's not being literal. He's not talking about the presence of original sin. He's using hyperbole to talk about how sinful he feels, right? He's not talking about being a sinful little baby. And we also know that when Jesus, as another example, says, if your eye causes you to sin, to pluck it out, that he's not being literal, right? You guys with me? He is being, he is using hyperbole to say this is the danger of sin. So scripture's inspired, but it doesn't mean that everything in scripture is the same. It doesn't mean that it's all inspired in the same way. And this is critical. We need to realize that Scripture was not inspired just for you. Right? Let me explain that. When we open the Bible, we often make this mistake of thinking that every page and every verse was written only for me. That's not true. When we open the Bible, every page... Every verse, every chapter, every author had an original audience with an original intent. And that original intent and audience had an original and specific cultural context. So it's important, church family, please hear this. If, you, if you're like, man, I don't know how to read the Bible, here's a starting point. The Bible was not written in a vacuum. The Bible was written for you, but it was not originally written to you. You with me? Okay, you have to know that in order to interpret it. When we interpret it through the lens of American Western Christianity only, we make a lot of mistakes and we miss the inspiration behind it. We miss it. What I mean by that is that the Bible is written for you but not originally to you is that it has original audience, original meaning, original context. And for us to know what is actually God-breathed and to interpret faithfully, we have to dig in to scripture. And that's what we're gonna do with Genesis 1. Because Genesis 1 is a specific type of literature. It's a specific genre. It is a genre called creation narrative. One of the forms that scripture takes on and that was common in the ancient world, particularly around the time of the Egyptian empire, was creation narrative. There was many more than just the Bible, but they were these stories that explained how did the world come to be? How did the world take shape? And there was Syrian creation stories, and there was Babylonian ones, and there was Egyptian, and they all basically had the same plot. All these polytheistic worlds wrote creation stories that basically said the God's formed the world out of violence and chaos. And if we don't appease these violent gods, they're going to be violent toward us. The gods were angry. Chaos was, in, was reigning, and chaos will reign if you don't appease these gods. So Genesis 1, if you're following with me, is a creation narrative that is going to use poetry 
to come into a world full of a bunch of other stories about how the world came to be and counter that narrative. It's a story that says God is different than those gods with a little g. It's a story that's going to say, you've heard this, now let me hear, let, me, let us hear this. Let me tell you that you've heard this thing about God, now let me tell you about big G God. Let me tell you about Elohim. Let me tell you about Yahweh. It's a different story. It's a poem that says, you think the world works this way, this is the true story of how God ordered the world, and it works this way. And it has the potential to change everything. So y'all ready? Is that enough intro? <laughs> You're like, good grief, Jake. Well, there's a whole lot more, so hold on. Let's get into the passage. And I'm gonna do a faux pas here in a minute. I'm gonna read a big chunk of scripture, and you're gonna have to hang with me. I'm gonna need you today to, to concentrate because we want to hear this passage again as if we're hearing it new. And you need to set your mind as you hear this passage as what am I listening to if I'm listening to in a world of an original audience that had heard all these things about God's trying to get me and now they're hearing a new story of the God of Israel who is countering those narratives, right? It'd be like going and saying, there's a bunch of junk out there in, in, in mystery and, and in fiction writing and I'm gonna write a totally different way of doing mystery and fiction, and, and sell it at Barnes and Noble and on Amazon, and it's gonna look totally different. That's what's happening in Genesis 1. There's all this other literature. Now let me show you what God's really like, and it begins like this. Genesis 1, 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. We'll pause there and say this. The story begins with this word, Elohim Barah. In the beginning, Elohim, God, Barad, he created. And what did he create? Heavens and earth. And he created that in a world that was formless and empty, tohu vavohu, this word that means chaotic and nothingness and darkness and swirling. I've heard it said before that it, if you put nothing in a blender and turn it on, that's tohu vavohu, just chaotic nothingness. And in that place of chaotic nothingness, God speaks at the start of verse three, but before that, the spirit of God hovers over this darkness in this sea, in this weird, chaotic world. It's an idea of a dove hovering over the water, just as the dove hovered over Jesus at his baptism. New creation, original creation, such a cool picture. God then speaks in verse 3a, which we'll get to in a second. So at the early part of this passage, what you have is threes. You have God appearing as three. He's God creator, God spirit, and God who speaks. He's God, he's spirit, and he's word. Now let's pick it up, and we're going to read the rest 
of this story. So hang with me for a few minutes. So we have this God who says he creates heaven and earth, and here's what happens. Pick up on, as I hear this, rhythm and pattern as you listen. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and that was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it, and it was so. God called the vault sky, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear, and it was so. God called the dry ground land, and the gathered waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. And then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in them, according to their various kinds. And it was so, the land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it, according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years and let, there be, and let them be lights in the vault of the sky and give, to give light to the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern or the word is to rule the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, let the water teem with living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. And so God created uh, the great creatures of the sea and every living thing with which the water teems and and that moves about in it according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth and the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. And that was evening and there was morning, the fifth day. And then God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground and the wild animals, each according to their kind. And it was so And God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Now, then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his image, In the image of God, he created the male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made and it was very good. Tov, mayod. And there was evening 
and there was mourning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, he rested from all the work of creating all that he had done. <sighs> I'm gonna take a breath. <laughs> now I know that was a lot, but wow. If you stayed with me, if you were able to lean into this scripture, what you probably heard was repetition, cadence. This is a poem. You heard things repeated over and over. Specifically, you should have heard, probably the easiest thing to pick up on was two phrases, right? Evening and morning, and then the phrase, it was good. This is creation narrative poetry at work. Ancient people, thinking not like we think, but trying to say something. It's a strange way for us to start a book, but it is a masterful, complicated, genius way to start a grand story, and I'm gonna show you why. But what I wanna begin with is this, is that Genesis 1 is not trying to answer the question, how? It's not trying to answer that question. The story is not a journal entry into a scientific piece of work. The story is about who and what. That's what you're supposed to hear. We often go to this text and look for hows. How was it made and how long did it take? But the story is supposed to be about who made it and what did he make and how do those two relate together. Now, that may be upsetting for you to hear. You may be saying, Jake, are you saying something? Are you saying you're an evolutionist? No, I'm not. I'm just telling us to ask the right questions. Because the story, if you want to know how long it took, or if you want to argue about how did it all happen, that's great. But Genesis 1 isn't trying to answer that question. It's trying to answer who. Who in a world of false gods is actually in charge? Okay? You with me? Now that's something that may bother you. Please come talk to me if that bothers you. I'm not trying to say something crazy. I'm just trying to tell you what the text is actually about. It is a story of creation done by a grand creator. That's the story. It's all about the who. If you try to answer science questions with this, there's some weird questions you got to answer. How do we know what a day is till the sun and moon don't show up till day four? We don't know what a day is, right? How long was day one through three then? We don't know, because guess what? There wasn't a sun or moon till day four, right? How, does the, how do the plants grow without the sun before that? They grow up on day three. It's weird too, isn't it? It's not a scientific journal. It is a story of grand narrative of creation saying who and what? How do I know that? You sound confident of this up here, right? I am confident of that because look at what the passage does. There's repetition in this passage. There's a grand poetry going on that's actually better than trying to figure out the how because it's answering the who. There's so much going on. There's patterns in it. We noticed in verses 1 and 2 and, and 3a, there's a pattern of, of 3. God creates, God hovers, and God speaks. 
But if we look even closer, there's even more repeats. Follow this. This is so cool. There's so many repeats in, the pa in these passages. First of all, there's threes all over the place. Create is used as a word. Bara is the, is the Hebrew. Three times. It's at the beginning, it's right in the middle, and it's at the end. And at the end, to, to, to emphasize that God did this, it's repeated three times again at the end. He created, he created, he created. The phrase, it was good, appears six times, but it's structured to give you days one, two, and three are good, and then let me show you days four, five, and six are good. It's three times repeated twice. You'll see how that works here in a minute. There's not just threes repeated in this poetry. There's also sevens. Oh, this is so, so good. The first stanza in Hebrew is exactly seven words. The second stanza in Hebrew is exactly 14 words. The word earth appears in this poem in Hebrew 21 times, three times seven. The word God appears in this poetry 35 times, five times seven. Of course, there's seven days, right? Three and seven. Well, if you're following along, then you'd say, well, Jake, what's three plus seven? Well, it's 10, right? Well, look at these tens. The phrase to make appears 10 times in what we just read. The phrase according to its kind appears 10 times. The phrase and God said appears 10 times. The phrase let there be appears 10 times. That's incredible, complicated writing. Somebody had some help here and somebody was smart. Creation narrative. It's organized. It's trying to say you know what threes, sevens, and tens mean to ancient Jews? Complete. Complete. Over and over again. Three times, seven, ten. God, what he made, this God, when he makes things, it is good. That's what's happening. Now, there's even more to that. I'm going to stop the nerdy stuff here in a minute, but there is even more than that. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but... How he creates matters too. You notice up on the screen, days one through one, two, and three, God does separating. That's all he does. He separates light from darkness, he separates water from sky, and he separates land from seas. And then on days four, five, and six, he fills each of those days with what he separated. So on day four, he fills the light and the darkness with what? Sun, moon, and stars. On day five, he fills water and sky, right? with fish and birds. And then on day six, he fills the land with humans and animals. So what he separates, he fills. He's not a God who just created without purpose. This is a poem trying to tell you a purpose, that there is something going on. There's something in the middle of this. There's something happening with this story that's big and grand. It's also really cool that it begins with nothing, tohu vavohu, chaotic nothingness, and it ends with day seven with God reigning over not nothingness, but his created order, and now having to do nothing. It's framed by nothingness. It's such a cool story. Now, I told you a few moments ago, and I want to get into what all this means here in a moment. But a few moments ago, I talked about how this 
story was written in a time of competing stories. Alternative narratives about, did the Egyptian god Ra make this? Did the Babylonian god Baal make this? All those competing stories, those stories were full of violence and selfishness. But God, those, these gods, little Gs who were, who were out to get humans and humans better respond to make them ha- happy. But Genesis 1 comes along and says, there's a whole other narrative. And there's something here that is a treasure for us. See, in ancient Judaism, there's, there was a way of writing. You gotta, you gotta think about this. This is, oh, I don't know if I wanna wade this deep, but we will, just for a second. Um, in ancient Judaism, there was a way of writing a text that was common. You gotta imagine yourself where you couldn't read or write. Only a few people could. So you lived in an oral tradition where you had to memorize everything. So they would write things like this. Here's what God did, and here's how he filled it. Just like you got on your screen there. God separated, God filled. But the point of writing that way was to get people to memorize, but then it was also to get people to see what was in the middle of all that. There's a treasure always hidden in the middle of things. It's a, it's a poetry form that call, is called chiasm, and it's all throughout your Bible. It's in the New Testament, it's in the Old Testament, it's all over the place. Now hang with me, you guys are like, good night, when are you gonna get to the good stuff? In about two minutes, <laughs> okay? Genesis 1 is written this way. Genesis 1 is a chiastic poem with the middle being the centerpiece. So if we were to take Genesis 1 and count the number of Hebrew words up and divide it by two and then find the exact middle word, you know what word we'd get? We'd get this word Moad. Everybody want to say Moad? Let's practice that. We'll get everybody awake now. Moad, Moad. And Moad is what's found in Genesis 1, verse 14. It is the word that the NIV uh, says correctly, sacred times. It's a Hebrew word that was used to describe festivals, Sabbaths, seasons. It's a word used for Sabbath. It is not the Sabbath, as in Saturday, but it is a Sabbath. That the centerpiece of this whole thing is a time of a God, a who, declaring that he has made a world that at the center of it is festival and thanksgiving and community and rest. Sacred times is at the middle of this whole thing. It's the exact middle, which you ought to be asking this question right now. Why? Right? What in the world are you talking about, right? Well, we answer the why by asking again the who. Who's the original audience? Who's the first people to ever hear Genesis 1? You ever thought about that? You read Genesis 1 and maybe you think, well, I'm hearing this. And we start asking all these questions that we may not need to ask. Maybe the question we need to ask is, who heard this the first time? Who needed to hear this for the first time? Well, it wasn't Abraham. Abraham's dead by the time this stuff's written down. You guys, that's blowing some minds. I thought Abraham had a Bible. No, Abraham's in the Bible. He didn't have a Bible, okay? First people to ever hear this text is, according to tradition, the Israelites, as they have just escaped slavery. And what do you do in slavery? What's your life like in slavery? What did they do when they were in Egypt? They were brick makers, right? 
And if you're slave and your job is to make bricks, what is your life valued by? How much do you have to work, right? If you're a slave and your job is to make bricks, you work all days, right? Every day, sun up to sun down. And how many weekends do you get off? Zero, right? And how many vacations days do you get to accrue and sick paid days, right? Zero, right? In Egypt, their identity was all tied to bricks. In Egypt, the Israelites, their whole identity and valuableness was tied to if they could hit their quota and be productive. And if they couldn't hit their productivity mark, what would happen? They would die. You can't do enough. You are unworthy. That's the... That's the theme. That's the identity of the Israelites. Then they get released from this slavery and they get to hear about a story of a God who's different. Why is this the first lesson in the Bible? Why is Moad, this word about festivals and rest and thanksgiving, the middle of this poem? Why does God keep repeating phrases like evening and morning and it was good? Because the first lesson of the Bible, the opening lesson of the inspired word of God is saying, you are not valuable because of what you produce. You are valuable because of who made you. You with me, church family? And we think Genesis 1 is irrelevant to our times. What does the American empire tell us? You are only valuable if you produce. Lesson number one, I'll get away from the nerdy stuff, is this. Let's get into application. You are made in the image of God. And this God has created a world that is good. Lesson number two is this, is your days begin with rest. Let's go back to those refrains that we started with. There's those repeats, right? There's a repetition over and over. There was evening and there was morning the first day. There was evening and there was morning the second day. It says it six times, right? In our world, that's backwards, right? We don't count days by evening and morning. We count days by what? Morning and then evening. You'll wake up tomorrow and tomorrow will be Monday, right? Jewish world, when the sun went down, that was Monday. When the sun went down, goes down tonight, it's the Jewish idea of God created the world evening and morning because we serve a good God, so our days begin with a six, seven, or eight hour nap. How about that? It's a totally different way of thinking, right? We get up to work. God is telling them in Genesis 1, you rest first so you can work. You enjoy what I've made. You become part of my creation, and then your work flows out of my rest. You don't work for rest. You work from rest. How about that, church? Try that for a little bit. Live into that. Try that for a week. Tonight, 
When you go to bed, say, it's Monday, and I get to start Monday off with sleep. How about that? It'll change your world. It'll blow your mind, right? How fun would that be if we all started to do that? Why? Because we serve a God who starts with rest. Some of you are going, well, that can't possibly be true. We just read it, right? We just read it, guys. I want to be scriptural. And scripture starts with rest. That's our second lesson. Lesson number three, and the final one, is the story begins with goodness. See, it matters, guys, where we start the story. Church family, the story matters where we begin. We start in Genesis 1 because the story says again and again, it was good. We live in a world that tells us the world is what? It's horrible, it's bad, it's evil. Look out for what's out there. Scripture begins with the story of it is good. And that's important that we start the story in the right place because if I start in the middle, if I start in the wrong chapter, I get the Bible wrong. If I pick up the Bible and start reading, assuming things in the wrong place, I can get the whole thing off track, right? So we gotta start the story where it starts in the right place. And what we often do is we start the story in Genesis 3 and not in Genesis 1. We start with sin and how bad we are and we miss the God who made it all good. If we start the story in Genesis 3, then we believe that our fundamental identity is sin. And too much of the time, that's what we believe. Genesis 1 declares that we are human, and to be human is to be made in the image of God. Are we sinners? Of course. I'm not giving some universalism up here. But you gotta start the story in the right place. Hear this, church. Sin needs to be put in its proper place. Sin isn't where the Bible begins, and if you've read the end of the Bible, it's not where the Bible ends either. Is there sin in heaven? There wasn't sin in the original creation, and there won't be sin in the new creation. So let's put sin in its place. It's in the middle, and it's something that did not exist, and it is something that is passing away. Amen? So let's read the story right. It begins with good. If I begin the story of the Bible in Genesis 1, the story is about restoration because things get messed up in Genesis 3. The story is about putting the world back to how it was in Genesis 1 and 2. It's about redemption and reconciliation. If I start the Bible in Genesis 3, I get that all wrong. It's about removal. It's about removing, getting sin out of me and getting me out of the world. If I start in Genesis 1, the story is about who I am, a fundamental identity that God has crowned humans with his glory. He blessed them. And we are in partnership with him in humility to make the world a better place. That's a fundamental identity. If I start in Genesis chapter 3, it's not who I am, it's who I am not. It's what I've done wrong, how I'm the enemy of God. If I start in Genesis chapter one, it's about a partnership with God. It's about a new heavens, a new earth. It's about us saying, bring heaven to earth right now, Lord. 
But if I start in chapter three, it's about evacuation. It's about this world stinks. We better go get another one. We better fly away. That's not what scripture teaches. If it's to start in chapter one, it's about purpose and mission. If it's about chapter three, it's I'm just wrong. So let's get the story straight. And let's listen to this final thing, and I'll be quiet. That was a long sermon, but it's all about this. Trust how the story begins. Trust it. Today, with whatever you face, with whatever's going on in your life, with whatever this Monday is going to bring you when the sun goes down tonight, see what I did there, right? When the sun goes down and our new day begins, Genesis 1 is telling you you can trust the story because God is good and because God created all this and God will have his way, right? So whatever you're facing today, the ups and downs, the grief, the hardship, the story didn't begin with that stuff, guys. And it's not going towards that stuff. Where the story's going is to a place where those things no longer exist. So trust the story. Isn't Genesis 1 amazing? Oh my goodness, that should have blown your mind today. If it didn't, I feel sorry for you, right? I mean, I, 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 could, I could go through this in my life 15 more times and I wouldn't bore myself because to see the power of scripture to keep saying over and over and over and over again, you can trust me, puts me in a place at ease. I'm a guy who likes to control my future, plan my future, try to dictate my future, and this story comes to me. If you're with me, anybody with me out there, come on, let me hear you. Control freaks of the world, that's all of you. All right, if you're with me, this story keeps saying, you're not in control. Trust me. Trust God and what he's done and what he's doing and what he will do. Oh, we need to tell this story to the world, right? So let's do that. And if you need prayers for this, whatever you need today, this is good. And we're gonna get deeper and deeper into this throughout the summer. A God we can trust. Let's stand together and sing with Corey.